Thanks, Dave and David. Well, welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the uh, pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to Romans 6, that's where we'll be, verses uh, 1 through 4. And as you turn there, I want to tell you uh, a little bit of a story. So when I was in high school, I uh, got a seasonal job uh, during the Christmas season as, uh, at a jewelry store. And my job at the jewelry store was not actually to sell jewelry. I don't know anything about jewelry. Uh, instead, my job was to be a credit card pusher. Uh, I was to be out there with a little clipboard and a little application, and I was to get people to sign up uh, for a credit card with this particular jewelry store. And, uh, and this was not a dream job for a number of reasons. Uh, first off, uh, because I'm not a good salesperson. Uh, I'm really not uh, wired for that. I'm not cut out for that. My brother actually is in sales. He's actually really good at that kind of thing. But that's not my personality at all. And so that's one of the reasons that I wasn't good. Because if I can't sell something, I'm certainly not going to be able to sell credit card applications to people. And uh, another thing is I don't know anything. I'm a high school boy. I don't know anything about jewelry. I don't know anything about credit cards. I have no idea what you're signing up for. And uh, so throwing me out there with a clipboard uh, in an area that I'm completely ignorant, again, just shows why I wasn't cut out. Plus, I'm an introvert. Some of you know this about me. Zach's an extrovert. Tim's an extrovert. Carl's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. And uh, and so the idea of me going up to strangers and asking if uh, they wanted to fill out this form uh, for a credit card was just kind of terrifying uh, to me. And my strategy was really horrible because I would try to use like reverse psychology. People would walk up and say, what's this? And I'd say, oh, you don't want this. They say, okay. And they just walk away. (laughs) That's the way I did it. And so I was horrible, but it was a job. And I was bad at it. So eventually, they moved me off of credit card duty, and they moved me into the store, and I got to, uh, to sell uh, jewelry, which, again, I wasn't good at that either. And so eventually, I quit that job and took a uh, job in the uh, local junior college bookstore, which I eventually got fired from. Uh, it, was a, it was a really bad year in, uh, in my life. But when I, uh, when I got to A&M for college, then all of my vast days as a credit card pusher really paid off. Because uh, in like the second week of classes or something like that, I'm walking by the, uh, the MSC, the Memorial Student Center, and, uh, and this entire area is just filled. It's like uh, thinking through the Old Testament festival of booth. There's just booth after booth after booth after booth. And uh, each booth is trying to get you to sign up for some credit card. And, uh, and so I thought, man, I, I know this game. I know this racket. I know this world. The problem was they had a number of things at their disposal that I didn't. Talent was one of them. And uh, another thing that they had was they had the offer of a free T-shirt. So in order to sign up, if you signed up for a credit card, you would be able to get a free t-shirt. Now you have to understand that in the mid-90s, for a college student, the offer of a t-shirt was like the ultimate find. It's like the holy grail. It is like the thing that you most covet of everything in the entire world. And so the idea of this festival of booths where there's just t-shirt after t-shirt after t-shirt. It didn't matter to a college student that every single one of them was like a double extra large. And I'm not a double extra large. It didn't matter at all that they were of really suspect quality. It didn't matter that next to the A&M, it also had like an MBNA or a Discover or something like that, some other sort of 
logo. I mean, this was like being here was like kind of getting a, an opportunity to tour the vaults of Fort Knox. And, uh, and so I took this opportunity to get a new t-shirt, but not one, not two, but three, because I figure to be efficient, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a first-year college student, I figure I don't want to be doing laundry all that often, so I really need a few t-shirts to kind of put into my uh, wardrobe so that I don't have to do laundry all the time. And so I end up walking away with three of these t-shirts and, by the way, three credit cards. Now, I no longer have any of these t-shirts. I've since moved on from them. I still have one of the credit cards because it's like 21 years old, so I have probably really good credit on it uh, now, and it's free. Uh, But my point is sometimes an offer is a little bit uh, too good to be true. Sometimes an offer seems like it's a wise thing. Sometimes an offer seems like it's something beneficial, seems like it would be a blessing, but really it's not. That's our uh, text uh, this morning. Our text this morning is kind of the idea, should you you sign up for as many credit cards as possible in order to fill your closets and your drawers till they're overflowing with free t-shirts? And what you do is you now you take uh, the credit card and you replace that with sin and you take the t-shirts and you replace that with grace and you have our passage this morning. Should you sin all the more so that grace may abound? It sounds logical. It naturally flows out of what we've been looking at in the book of Romans. But for a number of reasons, this isn't at all the understanding of grace that Paul wants you to walk away with. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you a heart that is undivided and a mind that's undistracted. And then would you pray that for those around you? For your spouse, for your kids, for strangers, for us collectively. And then lastly, would you pray for me? That I would be faithful to the word. So, Father, we thank you for an opportunity to dive into your word this morning. I pray that you would help us, help us to see uh, the glory of your grace. Help us to better understand the implications of it for our lives, as it uh, not only is going to forgive us our sin, but it's going to transform us and liberate us and draw us into this new life in your Son, Lord. And so help us to see these things because you're good and you do good. And the more that we see your grace and your glory, uh, the greater that we, uh, capacity we have to worship, Lord. The ceiling of our worship is raised. And so I pray that you would do that this morning in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll start in uh, Romans 6, verse 1, where Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So you see this passage is going to begin with these two questions, and questions play a really important uh, part in, uh, in Scripture. We see them throughout the Old Testament. One of the very first uh, stories that we have uh, in the Old Testament, uh, beyond just the creation in general, is the creation of mankind, and then you get to the fall, and one of the first questions after the fall, the first thing that happens is God comes on the scene and He says, Adam, where are you? And then later on, just a chapter later, he asks Cain, he says, where is your brother? 
Later on uh, in, uh, in Scripture, you see him ask Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Or God asked Jonah, do you have any reason at all to be angry with me for pouring out my mercy and grace upon this city? Jesus does this all the time as well. Jesus is going to constantly engage in this Socratic method, which is a method of teaching whereby uh, someone asks questions in order to help someone to understand what is being taught. And so Jesus does this all the time. He says, look at the birds of the air. Are you not more valuable than they are? Consider the flowers. Why are you anxious? Or Jesus is going to ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Or he's going to ask, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Or he's going to ask, how is Christ David's son and also David's Lord? Constantly, we see these questions being brought up in Scripture, not because God or uh, Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, not because they are deficient in knowledge, not because they don't know the answer, but they're a rhetorical device, a teaching device. Likewise, Paul is bringing up these questions for this purpose, and Paul does this all the time. Romans 3, 5 through 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Romans 6, 15, just later in uh, the chapter that we're preaching today. What then? Are we, to con- are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part by no means? 11, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? And this isn't only a Romans phenomenon. We actually see it uh, in a number of Paul's other uh, writings. Again, this is a form of teaching called the Socratic method in which this sort of question and answer uh, form uh, is going to take place in order to help us understand what is, uh, is happening. And so to appreciate why this question in particular, well, these two questions at the beginning of Romans 6 come up, we need to understand the context. So if you look back at Romans 5, verses 20 through 21, this will help us understand why he asked this question in Romans 6. In 5, 20 through 21, Paul had written, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, death also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increases, Paul says, grace abounds all the more. The more sin that is forgiven, the more grace that is necessary. Imagine you have this flashlight and you turn this flashlight on and that light is going to be brilliant, that light is going to be bright regardless of whether or not the lights are on or off around them. But the darker it is, the more that that light is going to shine, the more that we're going to be able to perceive its brilliance. And so the question comes up, should we turn off the lights? Should we close the blinds? Should we draw the curtains in order to manifest, in order to emphasize, in order to highlight the brilliance of this flashlight? That's what's going on here. You see why the question arises in in light of what he's just written in chapter 5. If it's really true, if it's really true that sin's increase leads to grace's increase, then why not sin all the more in order that grace may abound? So consider the opening analogy again, the opening illustration of t-shirts 
and that kind of thing. If I were to offer you a t-shirt in exchange for an opportunity for you to ruin your credit forever, you would see right through that uh, mirage, right? You would see right through uh, my little game that I was playing. But imagine, if you will, that I were to make you this offer. If I were to say, for every $1 you give me, I will give you $100 in return. Every $1 you give me, I will give you $100 in return. If you give me $1, I give you $100. If you give me $100, I give you $10,000. If you give me $10,000, I give you a million. What would be your response then? I would imagine that you would empty your pockets. I would imagine that you would empty your wallet you would go and you would empty your bank account, your checking and your savings, that you would, you, would, you would take everything out of your 401k because even with the penalty, you're still coming out ahead at 100 to 1 odds. You would may, maybe even sell your house and sell your car and all your possessions. Again, even if you take a loss, you're coming out ahead. So is that the way that we should interpret this text? You sin all the more so that grace may abound. We give God a little bit of sin. He gives us a whole lot of grace, and we come out ahead in the end. If sin's increase serves to highlight and glorify grace, then why not sin all the more? Why not give your little $1 of sin and get $100 of grace in return? Why not give your $100 of sin and get your $10,000 of grace? And so this sounds logical. It makes sense. It sounds like a logical implication of what he's just said in chapter 5. And there's two ways, though, that we can avoid, don't know what's going on there, two ways that we can avoid the logic of this uh, sort of way of thinking. The first way, and this is the way that I think a lot of people do, is uh, by restricting, by limiting our understanding of grace. We hear this implication, we think, why not sin all the more so that grace may abound? And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of constrict down our understanding of what grace really entails, what grace really is. But I'm here to say that the way that we deal with this implication, this false inference, is not by restricting grace, it's actually by expanding it. It sounds contradictory, it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds sort of antithetical to what we're getting for, but the way that we really kind of reign in grace is by letting grace reign. It's by understanding that what we want to do is not restrict grace. We want to expand our understanding of grace. Most people solve this problem, again, by limiting their understanding of grace. That's probably the default response Because I think grace is one of probably the most used and yet misused words in all of Christian vernacular. A lot of us think of grace as kind of like a reset button. You just kind of get a do-over. God presses the little reset button, but from then on out, you better live a good life. You better get everything together. You better have your, all of your uh, I's dotted and your T's crossed and all of those kinds of things because grace has given you this reset button and eventually you reach your number of resets and game over at that point. That's how some of us think of grace or we think of grace as something that has limits. It covers the white lies. It covers the impure thoughts, but not the hardcore stuff. It doesn't cover the murder. It doesn't cover the affair doesn't cover those sorts of things. We might even think deep down, we might even think we kind of deserve grace when it comes to certain types of sins. 
we downplay certain types of sins and thus downplay grace. Or we might think of grace as kind of a safety net, this sort of little safety net. What, you do what you can, and then God is going to step in and he's going to kind of make up the rest. Something's $10, you give your $8 or your $8.50, and then God steps in with the 2 or the 150. Just whatever you're lacking, God kind of steps in. So again, these are all these ways that we kind of restrict what grace really is. Those things aren't grace. None of that is what biblical grace is. Rather than limiting or restricting what grace entails, we actually need to expand it. We need to radically expand it because we need to understand that grace is scandalous. That's the point of this question that you haven't really grasped grace until you understand why this question would come up in the first place. Rather than restricting grace to only cover certain types of sin or certain times of sin or whatever it might be, we need to understand that the nature of grace is this unmerited favor. Or better yet, if you've never heard this term before, it's a demerited favor. It's not just that you haven't earned it, it's that you've earned the exact opposite. You've earned punishment. You've earned a debit, and now there is a credit that has been given to you. The true nature of grace is this demerited favor from beginning to end. It isn't a free t-shirt for signing up for a credit card. It's forgiveness of a debt that could never be personally repaid. That's the scandal that prompts this question. So let's see how Paul begins to answer it in verse 2. Romans 6, 2, it says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Raise your hand if you remember 1992. 1992. Some of you, I know, were like 20 or 30 then, and you didn't raise your hand, which means you had a rough 20 or 30s or something like that. But if you remember 1992, here's some things that were going on in 1992. I was a freshman in high school. Gas was about a dollar a gallon. Some of you might remember the uh, dream team, the very first dream team. They were tearing it up, dominating the Barcelona Olympics. That's when Johnny Carson, the king of late night, he had his uh, last show. Hypercolor shirts were really popular. You remember those? Hypercolor shirts, Z Cavaricci pants, really popular in 1992. Saved by the Bell was a really popular uh, TV show. And Wayne's World. Wayne's World was a really popular uh, SNL skit that later became a movie. And speaking of Wayne's World, there were two catchphrases uh, from that particular skit and movie that kind of entered into our cultural lingo, unfortunately. And they kind of capture the meaning of this little Greek phrase. This little Greek phrase that you see there translated as by no means, uh, meganoita uh, in the Greek. And those, Greek, uh, those Wayne's World terms were as if and not. You remember when not was this phenomenon? It was basically like the 90s version of a Jesus juke. You would say something, and no matter what you said, you would then just attach the word not on the end, and it would contradict whatever you said. You'd say something like, I really love New Kids on the Block. And then you'd pause for a second, and you'd say, not... And that was the whole thing. I don't know why this was a phenomenon, but it was. It actually was uh, 1992. Not was one of the words of the year. This old historic word, this was one of the words of the year because it changed its usage uh, in that word. That's kind of like what this Greek phrase meganoita is like. We should continue in sin that grace may abound. Not or as if. That's kind of the, the, the general thing there. The premise is correct. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. The premise is correct, but the inference is absolutely wrong. 
Should we, because we can get this free t-shirt, should we fill out a million credit card applications in order to get a million t-shirts? Of course not. By no means. Meganoita, not, as if, all of those sorts of things. And the reason, he says, why? Why shouldn't we do that? He says the reason is because we've died to sin. That's his answer. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we've died to sin? Does it mean sinless perfection? Is Paul saying here that we can't sin or that we don't ever sin again? No, absolutely. That's not what he's saying. By no means is he saying that. If that's what he meant, he could have said that we who died to sin, how can we still sin? But notice there's a little word in there. It doesn't say, how can we who died to sin still sin? It says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Anybody recall the recent story of the 30-year-old who was evicted from his parents' house? Tried to live there in his parents' house? It's, uh, there's nothing wrong whatsoever with a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old going to visit his parents. There's something wrong when a 30-year-old quits his job and takes up residence in his parents' basement and refuses to leave, even whenever they tell him to leave why he doesn't have a right to live there any longer. So the Bible is not saying that sin is not something that we occasionally visit. That's not Paul's point at all. Paul's saying that we can't take up residence there, that we can't live there any longer. We might occasionally sin, but it isn't our home. It isn't our address. It isn't our identity. We no longer live in sin. So the issue isn't the presence of sin. It's the power of sin. We see this clearly in a, uh, a text that we'll look at next week, verses 6 through 7, which says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, notice the power language that's going to come up in uh, the next section. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So to some degree, sin still abides in us. But to no degree do we still abide in sin. Those are entirely different concepts. Romans 1 through 3 that we've been looking at demonstrate how we are dead in sin. That's what it means to be in Adam, which is the point of chapter 5. Romans 1 through 3 are going to show that we're dead in sin. Chapters 4 and 5 are going to help us see that we're no longer in Adam but in Christ. And therefore, chapter 6 says that we are dead to sin. So we move from being dead in sin in chapters 1 through 3 through the, the, uh, uh, the uh, demonstration of the gospel in 4 and 5 into the implications of that being that we're no longer dead in sin, we are dead to sin. We're dead to the power and to the penalty of sin even though there's still the abiding presence of sin. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration of this. If you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, uh, there is uh, this character named Red, and it's played by uh, the great actor Morgan Freeman, one of my favorite uh, actors. And uh, Morgan Freeman plays this guy. Spoiler alert, he's actually guilty, and eventually he gets out of prison. And, uh, and so he's out of prison, and he's working in this little grocery shore, uh, store. And he is, uh, he's sacking groceries. And, and at one point, he kind of raises his hand, looks over at his manager, uh, and he says, bathroom break, boss? And uh, his manager calls him over and says, hey, you don't have to ask me every time you go. 
You don't have to ask me, but why does he do it? It's habituated. He spent his entire adult life, I forget how long it is, something like 50 years or 45 years or something like that. He spent his entire adult life living under a wicked warden and evil guardsman. And so now he's been habituated into this. Likewise, we may occasionally fall into sin. We may struggle with sin, but we're no longer under the power of it. We no longer are under a warden and and guards uh, in sin, even though we sometimes forget and act like it. So let's see how Paul continues to develop this idea of what it means to die to sin in uh, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is a really simple equation. If we've died with Christ, and if we're baptized into Christ, then it stands to reason that we were baptized into his death. So what does that mean? I want to talk a little bit about some theology. This is a a phrase that one of our former pastors, Jerry Hallbrook, just absolutely loved. Uh, In fact, whenever we were looking for a gift to give him, whenever he retired uh, and moved down to the Houston area, we gave him a quote, the quote that I'm going to read in a moment, uh, about this very subject because he loved this thing. He loved this doctrine. He loved this concept. He loved this truth. And you should too. This is one of those things that uh, probably you can go through years and years and years of reading the Bible and you never really see And then you see it for the first time, and all of a sudden your eyes are open to the fact that it's everywhere. Kind of like noticing all of a sudden that you're breathing. It's just the air that's been around you. And that doctrine is union with Christ. That's what we call it. Union with Christ. This is something we see throughout Scripture. Let me give you just a smattering of texts on this. Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 3, 25 through 28. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, which we preached through last year, verses 3 through 6, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And on and on we could go. Some of you might have even noticed we read from Romans and then 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians and then Galatians and then Ephesians. You notice those are just the first few books of Paul's epistles. We could go on with every one of his epistles. In fact, you could go on with every single book in the New Testament, and it is declaring this idea of union with Christ, that God has placed us where his love, where his grace, where his mercy is most potent. That is in his very son. 
We aren't on the edges of a pool getting splashed by occasional drops of grace. We are immersed into the deep end of God's grace and His mercy and His love and His hope and His blessing. Just in the first eight verses of chapter 6, we see that we're baptized into Him. We're buried together with Him, that we're united together with Him, that we're crucified together with Him, that we've died and we'll live with Him. So we know that this idea of union with Christ is at the forefront of Paul's thinking. I mentioned before, we gave a little plaque to Jerry Halbrook whenever he retired and moved on, and this was the quote that we put on it. It's a quote that I ran across a few years back, and it's utterly transformative for us to understand by a guy named Robert Raymond, a systematic theologian, and he says, union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing, repentance and faith, pardon, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing. And I'm not even going to read all of these others because you just can fill in the blank with every blessing. Any blessing that you receive only comes to you in virtue of this doctrine. In other words, this isn't peripheral. This isn't secondary. This is not one of those things that we can just say, agree to disagree on. It's primary. If you don't understand this reality, then your ability to grasp the gospel is distorted severely. It's like carrying around this credit card in your wallet, having no idea that it's prepaid with a million-dollar spending limit already loaded on it. So let me say it like this. Think of any good that comes to you from God. Fill in the blank with anything good that comes to you from God. Virtues and blessings like love and grace and peace and eternal life and joy. Now recognize those things belong to Jesus. Jesus is the heir. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled all of the conditions. Jesus is the one, the only one who is the true and proper heir. And you are co-heirs only in light of your association with Jesus. Only in light of the fact that you have been united to Christ. It's kind of like Meghan Markle who's married uh, Prince Harry. Apart from him, she doesn't have access to any of those things. She doesn't have access to the queen or palaces, or tiaras, or to estates, or jewels, or guards, or the royal box at Wimbledon. But through her union to him, she has access to it all. That's what union with Christ is, because we have been united to Christ. We have access to all that is his, including his death. And if, in this context, Paul's point is, if Jesus has died for sin, then we have died to sin. If Jesus has died for sin, then we have died to sin. That's Paul's point. But why all this talk about baptism? Well, baptism in this context is what's called a metonymy, which is a figure of speech whereby one word is substituted for another. For example, if I were to say that the White House said today, I don't literally mean that this building at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue suddenly spoke. Buildings don't speak. I don't mean that the building spoke. I mean instead that someone who lives there or someone who works there spoke. Likewise, if I were to say, hey, can you give me a hand with this? I'm really freaked out if you pull off your hand and hand it to me. 
I don't want your hand. I'm asking. I'm using a metonymy. I'm using a figure of speech to refer to the idea of help. So baptism is a metonymy here. His point is not really baptism in and of itself, but what baptism symbolizes, which is the entire process of conversion. That's what Paul is using baptism here to symbolize. So think about this from the perspective of the first century in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you probably noticed this phenomenon. Uh, The gospel is proclaimed. People hear the gospel. The Lord opens their heart to understand it and to believe it. And they receive the Spirit. And they're instantaneously, they're immediately baptized. There's no delay. It's instant. It's immediate. The entire time from hearing the gospel to baptism might be a matter of an hour or so. That's how quick things are within the context of the first uh, century. Now, we might know people who believed, and then they weren't baptized for days or weeks or months or even years later, but that's not the point here. There's no conception in Paul's mind, there's no conception in the first century church for someone who is a genuine believer who's not baptized. It wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't compute. If you were to kind of explain this phenomenon to Paul, uh, he would say, if you're a believer, why wouldn't you be baptized? It doesn't quite register. He would look at you Strange, why wouldn't a believer be baptized? That doesn't make any sense, Paul is going to uh, say. Paul's point here is not that you have to be baptized in order to be united to Christ. That's not his point at all. He's not saying that you're not saved until you are baptized. Again, that's not his point at all, although he would be probably bothered by the relative insignificance that uh, modern church has placed upon baptism. But his point is, His point is simply that baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. That baptism is this visual symbol of union with Christ. And so he's using baptism again as a metonymy. He's using it as a figure of speech to refer to this entire process of conversion. That baptism signifies union with Christ. And if you've been united to Christ, then you've been united to his death. And if you've been united to his death, then you have died to sin. That's the point and the flow of his argument. And by the way, just as an aside, this reality, not only of union with Christ, but this reality of death to sin should also be a death blow to our fears, to our worries, to our anxieties. What he's saying here is the worst thing that you can imagine happening to you has already happened in Christ. You have died with Christ. What more is there to fear? What more is there to be anxious about? Remember the story when Jesus is baptized? Jesus is baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit alights on him like a dove, and then a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, draw that imagery out. When you're united to Christ, in a sense, it's as if when you are baptized, when you are converted, when you're united to Christ, all of a sudden now a voice speaks over you and says, this is my beloved son, or this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And that voice, that voice speaking from heaven should be much louder and more authoritative than a million whispers of condemnation and shame and despair and anxiety. This is why, by the way, when the the great reformer Martin Luther, whenever he would be plagued by these thoughts of condemnation and shame and despair, he would respond simply by saying, I am baptized. I am 
baptized. The voice of my father is more authoritative and ultimate and solid and strong than all the combined lies of my enemy and the flesh. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that you've been united to Christ? Do you believe that you have died to sin? That all that Christ has is yours because you're in him. In other words, will you frolic in the freedom, the symbolic freedom of your baptismal waters? Or will you be content to just wade around in the shallows of semi-grace or pseudo-grace or half-grace? Let's keep going. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So now we move from death to burial, which is part of this imagery of baptism. Baptism is kind of like atonement in the theological equipping class this morning. We talked about atonement being this uh, multifaceted diamond, and depending upon the different way that you hold it up to the light, uh, you see different colors and shapes and all of those kind of things. Baptism is also kind of like that. It's multifaceted. and There are various images that are reflected in the symbol. First, there's this image of cleansing and rebirth. You obviously have sort of the imagery of washing as we use water to wash all kinds of things. In fact, in the early church, baptism was always done in living water, which meant moving water, moving which, uh, water which wasn't stagnant, water which wasn't still. It's kind of like a washing machine. There's a little stir cycle to stimulate that cleansing. And not only, though, is baptism going to show this sort of idea of cleansing and rebirth, but also faith and repentance. So we see John the Baptist, when he is baptizing, he's baptizing uh, this baptism of repentance. But you notice something also that's really interesting. If you read the book of Acts, you find that people who were baptized with John's baptism are all of a sudden now being baptized again. Why? Because John's baptism means something different than Jesus' baptism. There's more imagery that's embedded into Christian baptism than just what was uh, embedded into Jewish proselyte uh, or repentance sort of baptism or something. There's all kinds of different images now that are embedded in what we talk about from a biblical Christian perspective on baptism. For one, Christian baptism is going to signify both judgment and mercy. We tend to think of water as being fun, right? We have jet skis and surfing and beaches and slip and slides and all those kinds of things. Yesterday was uh, my daughter's second birthday, and, uh, and so family and some friends got together at my uh, in-law's house, and we just swam, and uh, we just played in the pool, and, uh, and we loved it, and she loves it. She loves water. She loves for you just to spray her with a water hose. That's just fun for her. You can just do that for hours and hours. So you can sit in a chair and just spray her. She tires herself out, and you don't have to do anything. She loves water. I, on the other hand... I've told you this before. I've confessed a lot of my fears. I had this love-hate relationship with water because I grew up in Baytown, Texas. And in Baytown, Texas, every single sort of waterway is filled with something that is trying to kill you. There's snakes. Uh, there's alligators. Uh, there's sharks. There's uh, dead possums. And I don't know. They got some sort of disease, I'm sure. Uh, so every single different waterway that I had an opportunity uh, to play in as a kid was filled with these things that are absolutely terrifying to me. 
And so I was terrified of water. In fact, to this day, I'm really iffy on lakes and oceans and seas and rivers and all those kinds of things. I like baths and showers and swimming pools. That's about it. Other than that, I am kind of out. And in that sense, I'm a lot more like a first century Jew because for them, in Hebrew literature, water is a sign of judgment. It's a sign of chaos. It's a sign of disorder. In the creation account, the water is described as chaotic until God separates it and orders it. In the story of Noah, the waters flood the earth as a sign of his judgment and wrath. In the Exodus, the Red Sea devours the Egyptians. In the Psalms, we read things like Psalm 69 verses 1 through 2, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. In the prophetic literature, God's wrath is pictured as a great flood that's sweeping away sin. Or it's pictured as Jonah being tossed into this raging sea. From a first century Jewish perspective, water is not this thing in which we are to frolic. Water is a thing in which we are immersed into God's wrath and judgment. It's dangerous. It's terrifying. And that's part of the imagery of baptism, that you're being immersed into God's wrath. You're being immersed into God's judgment, but because you're in Christ, you're protected, you're preserved, you're raised up again. Christ is like the ark in Noah's day. All who are in the ark are safe and warm and secure, but outside of the ark, there's chaos and judgment and wrath. Which is why Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians, he speaks of Israel being baptized in the Red Sea. They pass through the waters of judgment, safe and secure, Whereas those who are not attached, those who are not united to, those who are not associated with the God of the Old Testament, those who are not associated with the God of creation, they are immersed into God's wrath. So baptism isn't just about cleansing or rebirth. It isn't just about faith and repentance. It's not just about judgment and deliverance. It's also about death and resurrection. This is what is meant by being buried by being buried by baptism into death. We don't bury living people, at least I hope we don't bury living people. Baptism symbolizes death. It symbolizes burial, and burial symbolizes death. In fact, the Greek word baptizo in Greek, it was a word that literally just means to immerse. That's part of why we practice baptism by immersion in the water coffin, as, uh, as Zach called it. We don't sprinkle, we don't effuse, which is just pouring on of water. We fully immerse them. That's the meaning of the word baptizo in Greek. It's a word that would be used not only of just immersing something, but it's a word that's used of how you would dye clothing, D-Y-E, how you would dye clothing. Anyone who's ever dyed Easter eggs knows that you don't take the Easter egg and, uh, and just simply pour some dye on top of it. No, you take the Easter egg, you put it on that little uh, dipper thing, call it a baptizer, you take that and you baptize it down into the dye. That's the process for dyeing. This is the word that was used uh, in Greek literature for the process. And what happens when you raise that egg, when you pull that up, uh, that egg out or that uh, piece of uh, garment out of the dye, what happens? It has now taken on characteristics of what it's been lowered into. Likewise, when we're immersed into Christ's death, we come up taking on characteristics. 
In fact, the, the scripture would, would link this baptism idea to the idea of being clothed with Christ. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. In the gospel, we get something better than a free t-shirt. We're clothed with Jesus. So baptism is carrying all of this sort of imagery of uh, sort of overflowing from chapter 5, the distinction between being in Adam and in Christ by virtue of being united to Adam, we're immersed in his trespass and in his condemnation. But by virtue of being united to Christ, we're immersed in his free gift and in his justification. So Paul's argument then is that grace cannot possibly lead believers to sin all the more because by dying with Christ, the power of sin has been definitively broken. We're immersed into death and raised to walk in newness of life. As we go into these waters, our old nature, our union with Christ is washed away and we're raised to be clothed with Christ. So he ends by talking about so that we might walk in newness of life. That we not walk in newness of life because we have a new Lord. And with that new Lord, we have a new love and a new loyalty. So what does that mean for us? I want to end by just dealing with three implications from the text. Three different implications of this text. The first one being that grace is unbelievably gracious. Grace is unbelievably gracious. However gracious you think grace is, it's even more so. It is utterly scandalous. If you think of sin, any sin in particular, or sin in general as being beyond the pale of grace, then you haven't grasped grace. And not only have you not grasped grace, you've diluted the death of Christ. It's impossible. We talked about this last week. It's impossible to out the grace of God because where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Some of you need to repent of your little view of grace this morning. You have a view of grace that's restricted. You have a view of grace that's limited. You have a view of grace that is constricted. In order to not sin all the more, you would actually dilute down the picture of God's grace. You're selling yourself short. You're far too easily pleased. If that's you, will you repent this morning for not believing this version of grace? You've splashed yourself with a little dash of grace rather than immersing yourself into it. So will you lean into this full and overflowing vision of grace this morning? That's the first implication, that grace is unbelievably gracious. The second one, that grace is transformative. If you've understood what Paul has just said in Romans 5, then you understand that grace can be abused. And in a sense, it's always abused. Every single time we sin, we are abusing God's grace. But you also understand that for those, the more that we grasp how good God's grace is, the less likely we are to actually abuse it. Because grace isn't just forgiveness, it's transformation. Grace doesn't just cover our transgressions, it clothes us with Christ. It transfers you from dominion to sin to now dominion in Christ. We still sin, but we no longer abide in it. It's like if you move, from this man- you move to this mansion, 
And occasionally you drive back to your old apartment just out of habit. But you can't live there any longer. You're selling yourself short. You're far too easily pleased. If that's you, will you repent this morning and believe the transformative power of sin? Will you repent for not seeing the unsurpassable greatness of Christ that would not only forgive your sin, but would also transform your heart? Zach gave the illustration in Theological Quipping this morning of uh, a judge who would just absolve a serial killer and just say, don't worry about it. We saw how unjust that would be. And so instead, the judge comes and the judge takes the punishment himself. But then you hear that example and you might think, okay, but that's still, something's wrong with that because he's still letting a serial killer go. The gospel doesn't just promise forgiveness. It promises transformation, that our hearts are renewed, that the things that we used to love, we no longer love, and the things we used to hate, we now love in Jesus Christ. So grace is unbelievably gracious, grace is transformative, and lastly, grace is liberating. In Christ, you don't have to sin. In Adam, you always do. The phone rings, you answer it. The phone rings, you answer it. The phone rings, you answer it. In Christ, you no longer have to answer the phone. There is wave after wave of grace upon grace upon grace for when you do sin, but you're no longer under its dominion. You're no longer under the compulsion of sin. So if you feel enslaved to sin this morning, sin in general or any sin in particular, you need to repent. You need to repent of not believing that grace has freed you from the power of sin. So many times I'll hear Christians say, "Uh, I need to experience freedom. I need to be liberated. I need to be set free from this sin. And I would say, look down. You're not shackled. Shackled. That's sort of chain and shackled together. Shackled. You're not shackled. You're not chained any longer. The gospel has already set you free. You're no longer enslaved. You've already been set free. You've already been liberated. So if you feel enslaved to sin in general or even some particular sin, you need to repent this morning of not believing that grace had freed you from the power of sin. So will you lean into grace this morning? In other words, this grace that he expounds upon in this passage is kind of a two-edged sword. One edge cuts away from our condemnation and shame for when we do sin. It reminds us that grace does forgive. But the other edge also cuts through our apathy and our indifference to sin and reminds us that grace transforms and liberates. So how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you. For your son, I thank you that we have been united to him. And that if we've shared in a death like his, then we will share in a resurrection like him, when not only will we be free from the penalty and the power of sin, but even from the presence of sin. And we wait for that day with joy and expectation. I thank you, Lord, even as we celebrate this communal meal together, it's an opportunity for us to recognize our union with Christ. So help us, Lord, help us to see these truths and help us to be liberated. I pray that you'd protect us from condemnation and shame. I pray that you would also protect us from being those who would abuse grace, that we might be transformed and liberated and set free from it. So we love you. We want to love you more, Lord, because you have loved us. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.